Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 44, Terry Weight of Thunder. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Father whom we father. Essentially be ballast when we are essentially ballast. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 9, Saturdays of Thunder. And that first aired on November the 14th, 1991. And I'm lucky to be talking about someone who I consider to be a bit of a hero of mine. I'm going to be talking about Terry Waite, the hostage negotiator who was himself taken hostage in Lebanon in 1987 and was not released until November 18th, 1991, four days after Saturdays of Thunder was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. I'm afraid I've got to open with a few plugs today. So, friend of the podcast Paul Abbott has recently unleashed his new podcast, The Head Ballet, in which guests discuss their favourite novelty records. Episode one, available now on Podbean, features another friend of the podcast, Ben Baker of the Don't Let's Chart podcast, discussing Frank Sidebottom. Might you hear a future episode featuring your second favourite Retrospecticus host? Keep watching the skis to find out. And keep also an eye on further friend of the podcast, Tim Worthington's chronological journey through the Marvel Cinematic Universe in It's Good Except It Sucks, as I'll be cropping up there very soon. And indeed, in the Don't Let's Chart season finale, which should also be out around the time that this releases. So if you want more me, there's plenty of it going around. Excellent. Now, before I get going, I want to have a bit of a rant, because you may have noticed that there's... A lot of history going on at the moment. We are currently still in the 2020 coronavirus crisis. We're still in lockdown. And now history is made all the time. But right now it seems very, very significant. So on May 25th, 2020, uh, a guy called George Floyd was murdered while he was being arrested by racist white cop Derek Chauvin. Black Lives Matter events have taken place in solidarity all over the world, including here in the UK. On June 7th, 2020, a protest in Bristol tore down a statue of a slave trader, Edward Colston, and dumped it in the River Avon. On the same day, someone graffitied, was a racist, on the statue of Winston Churchill in London. And for someone like me who's into history, all of this is fantastic. People are questioning the past, and British people in particular are asking difficult questions about Britain's legacy, especially when it comes to the slave trade. And they're questioning Winston Churchill. Now, as I've said before on the show, I cannot stand the way Winston Churchill has been deified and put on a plinth as this angel who could do no wrong. He was, in many ways, a nasty piece of work. He uh, he, he, he he was a racist and he and his policies contributed to the Bengali famine, which killed millions of people. So in the words of a meme I made for Island Simpsons fans, my Winston is not a racist. He may be an alcoholic, an imperialist, a cokehead, a eugenicist, a racist, but he is not a porn star. An important point to take away from this. Churchill, not a porn star. Also, defo a racist. <laughs> um, yep. 
there are sad things happening every day to the extent that my 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 mind is on fire most of the time but then again so is most of the world so um i'm, I'm not asking for, for any sympathy here but the one thing that i would say is that when we come to do this for retrospecticus the last episode of season 31 aired on may the 17th so we're gonna miss all of this part of it it's it, it's such a shame such a shame that we, we won't get to uh, revisit this, which is why it's all the more important that we talk about these things while we're happening right now. Quite right. And with that, we return you to your Funny Simpsons podcast, already in progress. <laughs> and Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that particular week? Remembering it was November the 14th, 1991 that we were talking about. Well, the chart this week is dominated by stuff we've already talked about. So perhaps my jubilation at a fluid top 10 last time was somewhat premature. We're therefore dropping all the way down to number 10 for a track called It's Grim Up North by a bunch of young, fresh fellows that we've definitely not seen before called the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. It's basically a list of northern towns over an industrial techno beat with the chorus then saying It's Grim Up North a few times and the techno instrumentation gradually fading to reveal an orchestral version of the hymn Jerusalem, a great many years before Fat Les released their own take on that tune. The, the full version is 10 minutes and 3 seconds in length, but there is a radio edit that clocks in at just over 4 minutes. But who are the justified ancients of Moo Moo, or The Jams? You may remember a band we've previously covered warning us that, and I quote, if we meet further along, be prepared. Our disguise may be complete. Yes, it's the KLF again. Here slipping back into using a moniker that they had originally used before becoming the KLF, and indeed even predating their stint as the Time Lords. We're not quite at their Brit Award anarchy yet, so they were still a going concern. And I believe they released this single under a different name, A, to be difficult, and B, to distinguish the darker, less life-affirming material within from their stadium house hits. And given that their authorship means that this will almost certainly not be on Spotify, the playlist will instead be getting Fall at Your Feet by Crowded House from number 20. Uh, as it's quite early 90s, really, and we've not had one of theirs yet, and we might not get one of theirs. So there we go. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.9, which approximately equates to 13.7 million homes. It came 26th for the week overall and was the highest rated show on Fox that week. The debut airing of a certain Turbo Nonces new music video, Black or White, directly followed the broadcast of the episode, which may explain a slight upsurge in the viewership. The production number was 8F07, and the credited writers are Ken Levine and David Isaacs. We discussed them before in episode 18, Dancing Akihito, and here they are again with another vaguely sports-related episode. The chalkboard gag is, I will not fake rabies. And the couch gag is, the family fall into the couch and are left folded in half with their legs sticking up. So what actually happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to not believe they invented that. Yes, it's time for another edition of I Can't Believe They Invented That, presented by Troy McClure, who you may remember from such TV series as Buck Henderson Union Buster and Troy and Company's Summertime Smile Factory. But wait, I've skipped over the products mentioned in the introduction to said show. And since it's a list, Tom, I'll give you two clues. Three products were mentioned in total. 
And the last one changed the Simpsons' lives, according to Homer. Oh, the one that changed Simpsons' lives was the sugar cube maker. Uh, obviously an inspiration for the juice loosener because someone puts in like 20 kilos of sugar and three little cubes come out. Ah, oh, thing, thing is, I've got my head in a future episode, which has got the doggy doorman and Motelier, but that's a that's way in the future. Oh, I can't remember what's in this one. Okay, shall I uh, shall I list them? We've got um, the foam dome. Oh uh, yeah, of course. The hat with cans of drinks attached to the side, which did actually exist and will appear later in the episode as well. Um, and the jet walker, a mobility aid with rockets, which doesn't and shouldn't exist. Uh, yeah. And then, as you mentioned, Mr. Sugar Cube, a machine that makes cubes from granulated sugar. And I don't think exists, at least as a domestic version, uh, but it changed the Simpsons lives. Um, the subject of this edition is Spiffy. The 21st century stain remover, as presented by Dr. Nick Riviera and tested on the gravestone of Edgar Allan Poe, because of course it is. They are obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe. Quoth the Raven, what a shine. (laughs) Homer is enraptured whilst Bart borrows a suspicious amount of power tools, especially for someone who doesn't even know the correct size of flame for welding. Patty and Selma come round to discuss haircut strategies, which gives Homer the motivation to get out of the house by taking Lisa to VHS Village, formerly the Beta Barn, where he sees perhaps the most iconic section of McBain, in which Scoey is brutally slain in a diner after outlining his fantastic retirement plans in great detail. Meanwhile, at the salon, Patty and Selma point Marge towards a test from the National Fatherhood Institute that can calculate Homer's fatherhood quotient, or FQ. They believe, not unreasonably, that he would fail said. When they return, with fantastic hairstyles that Homer still laughs at, they put him through his paces, but he can't name one of Bart's friends, assumes Bart's hero is Steve McQueen, which notably is Homer's hero, speaks to no other fathers about parenting, and doesn't know any of Bart's hobbies. And when he asks him, he, and we, discover that Bart is putting together a soapbox derby car. We call them carts over here, I believe. To follow in the footsteps of his hero, three-time soapbox derby champ Ronnie Beck. And that Homer is also fat. He puts a call through to the Institute, who sent the wood-paddled station wagon to pick him up for an emergency appointment. We also learn that Martin Prince is building a racer, even booking time in a wind tunnel. At the NFI... Homer is issued a copy of Fatherhood by Name Redacted and given some advice before a shark-based emergency in the underwater fathering tank shatters the serenity. I love that. Uh, I love that accident in the shark tank because occasionally the Simpsons just throw in these really almost quite scary surreal moments and that's one of them. A little boy being eaten by a shark <laughs> for no reason. It's it's the cry of oh no it's happening again that gets me yeah. every time. It's, it's yeah yeah. Also, also also this episode has got a lot of dark associations because you you say you've said name red acted but I'm going to say it it's Bill Cosby who wrote the book and this episode aired just before a Michael Jackson video. Oh, word. Not good is it? Not good. We're hitting, hitting all the uh, celeb sex offenders here. Um, Homer insists on helping Bart with the racer, despite his uselessness at DIY, and uses reverse psychology to get his way. But at the time trials, where their car, Little Lightning, comes up against Martin's on a roller, and Nelson, with the weasels as his pit crew, 
in Roadkill 2000, Bart comes a humiliating third, with Martin's NASA-esque cart winning by miles, but due to a faulty braking parachute, the pilot winds up with a broken arm and asks Bart to drive the honor roller next time out to stop Nelson from winning. Unfortunately, this alienates Homer, who had enjoyed their time spent bonding. Homer then bumps into Martin in Dr. Hibbert's office and refuses to watch Bart's race, seeking solace in his foam dome. But when he sees the FQ test again, he realizes he passes all the questions, except for a father to discuss parenthood with. But a quick shout to Flanders fixes that in double quick time. And Homer arrives in the stands just in time to show Bart he cares. Bart duly wins the race, with Homer joining him for the most fun part, taking the mickey out of the loser. As the National Fatherhood Institute watch on a big screen, which is really quite creepy. <laughs> and and that's it. Uh, that's it in the terms I usually describe it. But it, it has to be said, they pack a lot of humour into the last two to three minutes of this episode. Uh, a particular favourite of mine, and, uh, and with one of my friends, uh, Mr. Christian Webb, if you're listening, Christian, hello. Uh, remember when the, uh, the honor roller overtakes Homer's car? It's actually faster than the car that his, his father drives, uh, which is a, a brilliant little uh, uh, sight gag. Also, um, Quimby hitting on the blonde with the big rack. His words, not mine, which is shown in the photos at the end. And then, of course, the reveal that, that Ronnie Beck is just as slight as you would expect a soapbox derby champion to be, given that they're all essentially ballast. There are some bits in this episode which we haven't talked about, but I really, that I really like. Nick, Nick Riviera is very good in this one. It's, some of his lines are great. Uh, the tombstone will be so clean, you'll think the body's still warm. <laughs> but I, I love the little extra products he gives away, including a state of Kansas jello mold, <laughs> which is absolute genius because the state of Kansas is just the shape of a rectangle. <laughs> if you've got something that's a rectangle, that's the shape of the state of Kansas. So, yeah, that's just absolutely genius. The fact that it has nothing to do with the product as well. I think there's an applicator <laughs> mitt, isn't there? But then, then the state, the state of Kansas uh, Jello mold is just completely out of left field. Um, <laughs> okay, so so I really like that one. Um, it's kind of if you sort of look at a list of episodes, I don't think Saturdays of Thunder really jumps out, you know, as as being a as being a good one. But it's it's pretty it's pretty up there, I must say. It's. Uh, <laughs> It's got a lot of classic Simpsons timing. I mean, we, we've already talked about the Shark Tank, but there's a bit where Homer's going through inventions he's put together, and one of them's uh, Maggie's Jungle Gym, I think, and it collapses. And then the next scene is Homer and Bart hearing it, and Homer goes, "What's that? I held it." The way that's timed to go from catastrophe to ignoring said catastrophe. Is, is great. So, Tom, would you like to hear about some character debuts from this episode? Yes, please. Well, tough. Um, we have the National Fatherhood Institute guys, who have never reappeared. Scoey, McBain's partner, who dies. And three-time soapbox derby champion Ronnie Beck, who has never reappeared. The character debut section is on hiatus for retooling. Um... <laughs> But I do have some did you knows. So first and foremost, but to be honest, whilst it was obvious at the time, I'm not necessarily sure it would be now, uh, such as history forgotten this. But the title of this episode is a reference to the 1990 Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman film Days of Thunder, 
which is about American stock car racing and is incredibly boring. It is also a barefaced attempt to recontextualize Top Gun and hits many of the same beats, but is utterly without compelling substance. That one you've ever seen, Tom? I've heard of Days of Thunder. I've never been tempted to watch it. I used to have an Amiga game of it, which was oh. just a, which was just a really straightforward, boring racing game. Well, this is a really boring, straightforward racing film. So I, I think that might count as one of the best film to video game adaptations ever made. <laughs> um, uh, the the other roller is sponsored by General Dynamics and Tang. So if anyone knows where to get Tang, it's not the president, it's Martin. When Homer is on hold to the Fatherhood Institute, the hold music is Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, which people around our age will probably remember from the awful overwrought version released by Ugly Kid Joe around this time. Thank heavens we had Britpop on the way to sweep all that lot away. (laughs) The original will be heard again in Season 25, Episode 5, Labour Pains. The sports section of VHS Village contains the following charming offerings. The Bad Football, Speedboat Bloopers, Frisbee 1991, Super Jock 3, Go Fight, a cheerleader's story, (laughs) Death by Knockout, Bench Clearing Brawls, Blood on the Ice, and of course, Football's Greatest Injuries. The store also has an entire section devoted to Elvis. And finally, in the last scene of the episode, we hear Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler, who recorded the song for the soundtrack of the 1988 film Beaches. It was named Record of the Year and Song of the Year at the 1990 Grammy Awards, and she will be appearing in a later episode, Season 4, Episode 22, Krusty Gets Cancelled, to sing this as a duet with Krusty. And I believe that brings us, Tom, to memeable moments. Indeed, indeed. So I counted two in this episode. The first one comes from the McBain short. I wanted to do it together. So on three. One, two, three. Mendoza! Ah. Oh, that was cathartic. That'll do. Okay, and the second memeable moment is the spice rack. So there's a bit where Homer goes through all the stuff he's helped make trying to convince Bart to help him with the soapbox racer and one of the things he makes is a spice rack and it's you know the worst spice rack ever but in April of this year April 2020 someone on Reddit made that spice rack in real life and it is almost picture perfect and it's got over 60,000 upvotes so if you want to be impressed by some rubbish woodwork go and check that out who doesn't, Tom? Who doesn't? So I don't think there's any more need to wait for Terry. OK, so Terry Wait. Now, I'm hoping most people will know who he is because he was a household name, definitely the 80s, definitely in the early part of the 90s. I mean, he might have faded out of public memory a bit these days. So I'll just go over who he is. So he's most famous for being the hostage negotiator who was himself taken hostage by Islamic Jihad in Lebanon. And he was held captive for over four years, of which most of that was in solitary confinement. Uh, But before that, he had an absolutely fascinating life, as if that isn't fascinating enough. And he worked all over the world, so I thought I'd go over that a bit. 
So Terry Waite was born on the 31st of May 1939, mere months before the start of the Second World War in Europe. He was born in Bollington, which is a small town in Cheshire in the northwest of England, not a million miles from Liverpool, where we're currently recording this. So his father was a village policeman, the fact that caused him a little bit of an issue when he was taken hostage, but more on that later. So as a young man, he became very religious and he joined the Anglican Church. After leaving school, he joined the army, joining up with the Grenadier Guards at Catherine Barracks. However, that didn't work out and he soon left. He joined an organisation called the Church Army, which is a humanitarian organisation, and his early posts included working at a hostel in Middlesbrough. I mean, imagine that, Middlesbrough's got nothing on Beirut. So, in 1969, he took a job in Uganda, working for Erika Sabiti, the first African Archbishop of Uganda. Whilst he was there, Idi Amin's coup took place. So who was Idi Amin? He was born in 1925 and joined the British Army in East Africa in 1946. Uganda became independent from the UK in 1962, and Idi Amin became head of the Ugandan army in 1965. When Waite moved to Uganda, the president was a guy called Milton Obote, and Obote was not well liked. In 1969, there was an attempt on Obote's life, and he banned all political parties apart from his own, essentially making himself a dictator. He kept himself in power with his general service unit, who killed and tortured people. In January 1971, Idi Amin feared that he was about to be arrested on corruption charges, so he launched a coup against Obote while Obote was in Singapore. The coup was initially popular with the people of Uganda, but it soon transpired that Amin was a lot worse. You know, we've all seen Last King of Scotland, he was, he was terrible. Uh, so as for Terry Waite, he was carjacked twice as Ugandan society broke down and crime became rampant. He was also a victim of a practice dubbed fishing, where thieves would put a hook on the end of a long pole and lift things out of houses. Sometimes they'd put razor blades on the pole so that if someone in the house tried to grab it, they'd do themselves an injury. Waite decided to return to England with his family, taking an unusual route home. They went by boat from Mombasa, Kenya. And at the time, the Suez Canal was shut, so they had to go the long way around in a trip that took four weeks. So, you know, round past South Africa, all the way up the west coast of Africa, uh, back up to the UK. It really wasn't that long ago either that you would you, you could conceive of that kind of a, a trip. These days, it'd just be a flight. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely mad. Mm-hmm. So after returning to England, his next post was in Rome. From 1972, he worked as an international consultant to the Medical Mission Sisters, a Catholic group whose mission was to go out into developing countries and improve healthcare for people. In his role, he travelled all over the world, helping to set up health programmes, hospitals and various interfaith and inter-ethnic groups. Faith didn't seem to be a barrier to him as he was an Anglican and he was working for a Catholic organisation. So, you know, well done there. In 1978, he returned to England and started working for the British Council of Churches. Two years later, he started working directly for the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, at Lambeth Palace. His official title was the Archbishop of Canterbury's assistant for Anglican communion affairs, but he was effectively his right-hand man, and his main job was to organise the Archbishop's travel programmes. It was also around this time that he turned his humanitarian skills to hostage negotiation. He had travelled extensively and was very good at getting on with people from all cultures and all faiths. His first major contribution to hostage negotiation was in Iran during the time of the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. 
And this is worth dwelling on because this is kind of a big deal. So in 1979, the Iranian Revolution saw the Shah of Iran overthrown and the rise to power of the Grand Ayatollah Rahola Khomeini, you know, the guy who Homer has a T-shirt of in his attic in the episode Two Bad Neighbours. But we should know that that does work for any Ayatollah. It does, indeed. Uh, so for years, the USA supported the Shah, and funnily enough, they weren't very popular in revolutionary Iran. On November 4th, 1979, a student group called the Muslim Student Followers of the Imam's Line, catchy name, took over the American embassy and held 52 American hostages for a total of 444 days. When negotiations failed, the Carter administration attempted a rescue mission called Operation Eagle Claw that failed miserably, with eight American servicemen dying when their helicopter crashed. The whole episode was an absolute disaster for the Carter administration, and it contributed to him losing in a landslide to Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. It's also why the good people of Springfield consider Carter to be history's greatest monster in the episode Margin Chains. And they have absolutely no problem in taking down a statue that proves to be massively unpopular. Ooh. Good, good for them. But the Americans weren't the only people being taken hostage around this time. Believe it or not, Iran played host to a small Anglican community. They had been persecuted by Islamic hardliners for some time, and on February 18th, 1979, the year of the revolution, Aristu Sayer, the senior priest of the Anglican communion there, was murdered. The rest of the Anglicans in Iran continued to be persecuted after the Ayatollah came to power, and they were all arrested because the regime thought that they were a network of spies. Although Terry Waite's official job was to organise international visits for the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had contacts in the Foreign Office, you know, which he got from his work. And in his spare time, he planned to get the Anglican hostages released. He went to Iran himself and successfully negotiated the release of the future Archdeacon of Iran, Iraj Motahadeh, Dmitry Belos, Nostrat Sharifian, a guy called Fazeli, who was a church member, and Jean Waddle. Now, Jean Waddle was the secretary to the Iranian Anglican Bishop Hassan Dekwani Tafti, and he also secured the release of Canon John Coleman and his wife. Now, Jean Waddle was in a very bad way, having been shot in a raid and left for dead, her life being saved by a nearby doctor. So Terry Way got all of those people released. You know, great job. In his spare time and everything. So Terry Waite's next hostage gig came in Libya. On the 17th of April 1984, a protest against the Libyan leader Colonel Gaddafi was organised outside the Libyan embassy in London. And PC Yvonne Fletcher was sent to supervise it. Without warning, gunfire came from the upper floors of the embassy, wounding 11 demonstrators and killing Yvonne Fletcher. The shooting was later revealed to be ordered by Gaddafi himself. It had immediate repercussions for the UK and Libya. In Tripoli, the UK embassy was under siege, with the ambassador Oliver Miles and his staff trapped in the building. In London, the Libyan embassy was under siege, with the SAS on standby. That week, five bombs were left in locations throughout the UK, of which one went off at Heathrow Airport, with the Libyans suspected. The rest of them were defused. Eventually, all the Libyan embassy staff were made to return to Libya, and the same went for all the British diplomats in Tripoli. However, there were about 8,000 Brits working abroad in Libya in the oil and construction industries. So in the aftermath... Britain severed diplomatic relations with the Gaddafi regime and charged several Libyans with terror offences. 
Similar to what they'd done in the past, the Libyan authorities arrested six British men on trumped-up charges and effectively held them hostage, stating that they would be released if all terror charges against Libyans were dropped and diplomatic ties were restored. Two of the men were released fairly quickly, but in October 1984, Terry Waite made several trips to Libya to secure the release of the other four, and he met Colonel Gaddafi in bizarre circumstances. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned about Terry Waite is his height. He stood at six foot seven inches tall, now he's taller than me. As was customary for Gaddafi, he wanted to meet him in a tent. And the roof of the tent just about went over Gaddafi's head, but of course Waite had to bend down under it, making it look like he was constantly bowing. And after nine months of captivity, Michael Burdiner, Alan Russell, Malcolm Anderson and Robin Plummer were eventually released. This is when Terry Waite really hit the headlines as a hostage negotiator. Cartoons of him started appearing in newspapers. Now, one from 1985 was of a prisoner talking to another saying, oh, it must be bad. I've just seen Terry Waite. So after Libya, Waite turned his attention to a country he was most famous for, that being Lebanon. Now, between 1975 and 1990, Lebanon was in the grip of a very complex civil war, which involved a huge number of groups. So there were Maronite Christians, Shia Muslims, Sunni Muslims, Druze, Palestinians and secular groups. Foreign powers intervened in the war, including Israel, Syria and Iran. One of the groups involved in the Lebanese civil war was Hezbollah, a Shia military group that controlled large parts of Beirut. One of their tactics during the 1980s was to kidnap Westerners and hold them hostage. And they would be held hostage for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it was money, sometimes they'd be exchanged for prisoners, and other times it was simply for leverage. You know, basically, don't attack us because we've got one of your hostages. So Terry Waite started to get involved in hostage negotiations in Lebanon in 1985 and was instrumental in securing the releases of David Jacobson and the Catholic priest Lawrence Jenko, who was held for 564 days. During this time, Waite built up a working relationship with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who would later be disgraced in the Iran-Contra affair. I'm pretty sure we've talked about that when I was talking about Nicaragua, if I remember rightly. So this relationship would be detrimental to him, as we will soon discover. So with Jacobson and Father Jenko released, Terry Waite went against the wishes of Robert Runcie and went back to Lebanon to try and secure the release of the hostages John McCarthy, Brian Keenan and Terry Anderson, who were being held by the Islamic Jihad group. However, when he arrived in Beirut on January 12, 1987 to meet the kidnappers, they kidnapped him too. And Terry Waite spent the next 1,763 days in confinement, of which all but the last few months were spent in isolation. He was finally released on November 18th, 1991, four days after Saturdays of Thunder was first aired. Terry Waite probably didn't even know that The Simpsons existed, poor guy. Imagine that. Now, being in captivity for that long, I don't think that's something that any of us could even begin to imagine. You know, being kept on your own for four years, not knowing what's going on in the outside world, not being fed properly, not being able to sleep because of all the noise going on because of the war and everything. Cannot imagine that at all. But Terry Waite wrote an account of it, which doubled as his autobiography called Taken on Trust. It's an absolutely fascinating read and written in a very interesting way. The book starts with him being taken hostage. And of course, he was left on his own for hour after hour. So in the parts of his ordeal where there's not much happening, he recants details of his life. So the story keeps switching from 
the present time to his earlier life. And he tells his life story through that medium. It's a very interesting way of telling a story. Well, it, and it's already a fascinating life story, as we've discussed. So yeah. uh, that's that's going to make quite an action-packed uh, um, <laughs> recollection, I would think. Absolutely. So early on in the story, uh, he is properly tortured. I mean, famously, he was chained to a radiator for goodness knows how long, but, 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 but this was way worse. So the kidnappers got him to write his life story, and he couldn't say that his father was a policeman in case it aroused suspicion his kidnappers had seen him photographed with oliver north so they assumed that they could divulge information from him and they tried this by whipping his bare feet with a cable you know, so that he could barely walk shortly after that they told him that they were going to kill him they told him that he could write a letter to his loved ones that he was going to be shot in his cell they pressed the barrel of a gun against his head and then they said no we're not going to kill you now later took the gun away so they put him through the stress and torment of a mock execution you know horrible thing to go through mm-hmm. but one of the things that unexpectedly stands out for me is the amount of humor in the book so my thinking is that when you're in such a dire situation as his you look for any shred of humanity you can find so for example when they were moving him from place to place they had quite a few ways of doing it they might throw a burqa over him and disguise him as a woman. And he's going, yeah, good luck with that. How many how many six foot seven women are there in Beirut? Or at one point, they put him in a fridge to move him. And that was a bit of a desperate situation for him because he was, he, he was extremely uncomfortable in there. And of course, fridges are airtight when they're closed. So he was only able to survive by nudging the, nudging the door open a crack. But as soon as the door closes, he thinks to himself, oh, of course, lights do go out when the fridge door shuts. It's quite an extraordinary thing to have running in the back of your mind when you're in that situation. But- the thing is, he he, uh, he could have survived an atomic blast in that, as, of course, we saw in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So. Yeah, yep. which is not a pile of absolute nonsense. <laughs> but, but, uh, but my favourite bit of humour comes from the interactions with the guards. So they put him on a strict routine where he'd get where he'd get to go to the bathroom once a day and his food was brought at certain times and they didn't speak much English. So all the conversations with the guards are very staccato. It's like, you want to eat? Uh, no, thank you. Well, why not eat? I'm not hungry because because he prepared himself for being captured. And one of the things he said he was going to do if he was was he was he's going to he was going to fast for seven days to like get into get into the mood of things like, like like getting used to denying him thing getting used to denying himself things that kind of thinking and later on he's always asking for books to kill time and the kidnappers talk about their leader who they call chef now i'm pretty sure that's because there was a french colonial presence in lebanon and the french for chief or boss is chef which is why we call whoever runs a kitchen a chef it's, it just comes directly from french and there's a part where he's told that he can have a TV, but the TV doesn't come. And he asks why. So I thought you said chef said I could have a TV. Uh, no, I talked to a chef today. He said no. Uh, didn't you talk to chef yesterday? No, I talked to little chef. <laughs> and his and he, boss, happy eater. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and yeah, as you say, he finds it funny that um, 
the proprietor of a chain of roadside cafes is running a, a terror group in Lebanon. There's a joke there about have you ever eaten there? But at the same time, I don't think you can eat there anymore. I can't remember the last time I saw a little chef. Little chefs. I'm pretty sure they still exist. Huh. Well, well, if you if you know listeners, then please <laughs> please drop us a line. But anyway, anyway, but the title of the book, taken on trust in a way, is kind of humorous because it's a pun. And uh, I know it was suggested to him by Terry Anderson as being the obvious title, but even so, it's like they held me captive, even though they assured me that they wouldn't. You might say. I was taken on trust. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You go through all of that and you still give your book title a pun. It's, it's extraordinary. Another thing I find very interesting is Terry Waite's Christian faith. And one of the things he says early on is that he didn't want to start comparing his situation to the suffering of Jesus because he believed that Jesus went through far worse. But obviously suffering is a big theme of the book. And towards the end of his captivity, he's put with the three other hostages, but they're housed in the same building for months without ever being able to meet each other. You know, because it was that well regimented that they'd never walk past each other, they'd never see each other, doors were always shut, that sort of thing. Eventually, Terry Waite was moved to a room which was next to the other three, and they worked out a rudimentary method of communication that involved tapping. So it's one tap for A, two taps for B, that sort of thing. And there's a part where Terry Waite tries to spell out his own name and he curses the fact that there's so many of the letters of his name are near the end of the alphabet. It's like, oh, God, I've got to get all the way to Y. Tap, 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 tap. I've got to get all the way to W. <laughs> so, and one of the things he did to pass the time was, was he wrote the book. He, um, he wrote Taken on Trust in his head while he was in captivity. And when he returned to the UK, he was elected a fellow commoner at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And he wrote Taken on Trust by hand, and someone typed it up for him. You know, that's a huge job in itself. So since being released, Terry Waite has written more books and continues to do humanitarian work. In 2004, he founded Hostage UK, a charity that helps hostages and their families. And he's even been back to Beirut. So... He's been there in 2004 and again in 2012. And the last time he went, he met with Amar Musawi, a senior figure in Hezbollah responsible for the organization's foreign relations, telling him, the past is past. Let us leave it. So that's Terry Waite, an absolutely terrific guy who's still kicking at the age of 80. Excellent. I heard a lot about Terry Waite on the news uh, in my younger years. Uh, that Obviously, that incident being the main one. Uh, you don't hear so much about sort of high-profile hostages these days. Uh, so that, that left an impression on me. So it may or may not surprise you to know that Terry Waite does not appear in The Simpsons. Um, but bear with me, because the Lebanon is mentioned um, a couple of times. One of them is in Season 16, Episode 13, Mobile Homer where a Turkish freighter captain refers to Marge as looking like a Lebanese term for sex worker redacted. Um, and secondly, in season 21, episode 12, Boy Meets Curl, where they participate in the Winter Olympics. Of course they do. The, the fallback I always have for this kind of thing. Um, 
one more thing I would mention. Uh, in Season 3, Episode 23, Bart's friend falls in love, which we will be at in the blink of an eye at this rate. When Marge is ordering the subliminal weight loss tape for Homer, one of the things that she's offered is uh, a tape that will subliminally teach him hostage negotiations. Uh, and there is a, a cutaway where she imagines just how badly that would go for Homer. So don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Oh, my God.